I think the positive answer is yes, you can, you should. Um, but it's always like at the end of the day, you boil it down to the brass tacks, you have to make a choice. In the end, if you're running a business, then that is the only choice to make. Um, it's very, very tough. That's where, you know, I think real leadership comes in, the ability to make a tough decision, which is a CEO you have to do. It's easy to make it when you, you boil it. Um, yeah. It's when you're bailing out, when you're choosing which crew member needs to go on overboard, that's the tough part of being a CEO. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I think that's where we're going to we're gonna encounter that and we're going to experience it. Um, anyway, folks, we're live, everybody. We are live. Um, it is Founders Focus. Um, my favorite thing to do. I'm so pleased I've actually got some cool CEOs joining us for the end of this year. Um, I'll do one of these every week if I could um uh, but it's not always easy to get ceos to step up and say yeah i want to talk about myself um but this is the show folks where we are going to go up close and personal with the people that are changing the world of recruitment and work today uh people who are so annoyed at the uh, uh the situation that they find themselves in that they thought it would be a good idea to set up a company to try and solve that problem so uh welcome everybody to the show i hope everyone can hear me we're on crowdcast we should be on linkedin we should be on twitter we should be on facebook as well uh, if you can hear me on all those kind of places please shout out let me know whether the audio video is okay just checking my phone that's how i do it uh ariel lo-fi uh just to see whether we're actually on the right places um so we'll just check it uh are we there I hope so. Yes, we are. We are live on LinkedIn Live. See, yeah, you could see everybody. Okay, so we have Ariel Kilroy with us. Ariel, great to join. Thank you so much for uh, taking part in the show. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be here. I mean, as you and I could chat for forever, so this feels like more like I'm hanging out with a friend. <laughs> which is what it is, which is what it is. And we've only got one hour, but we're, we're going to action pack it with all kinds of stuff. Um, Ariel, um, you are obviously a very busy person. So I wondered sort of what you had to cancel in order to appear on um, Founders Focus today. I'm always conscious of the fact, you know, those records where people assess how much like a CEO's hour is worth. So I'm conscious how much I'm costing data right now. Like what, what did you have to cancel in order to appear on the show? Well, thankfully, we booked this far enough in advance that I worked everything around it. Um, I have many customer calls today, some sales calls, some time with the team. Um, you know, I'm a very people focused leader. So uh, this was time I spend with you is time I won't spend with other people. But I love spending time with you. So it's great to be here. That is great. Let's start with that. Styles of CEOing. Um, and you mentioned very interestingly that you know, you're a people-orientated CEO. Um, I, I guess the opposite of that might be someone who's like a little bit in the spreadsheets and, you yeah. know, uh, doing that type of work, which may have, in fact, been the classic emergence of where CEO was, you know, like the, the, the forensic decision maker. Um, when you kind of what started this journey, uh, Ariel, um, were you conscious of your how you would be as a CEO or did that sort of emerge as you were doing the job? So I've, I mean, I've run teams before and departments before, so I probably had some idea of what my leadership style was like, but I really didn't know what this role was, right? Of course, I've worked with a lot of CEOs or people, you know, nonprofit, we call this executive director. It's a very similar role. Um, so I've worked with a lot of people in this role, but, you know, every company and especially at every size is a little bit different. And many ways i'm still learning what this job is right uh and and that has been a really fun journey 
but definitely one that I wouldn't have pictured differently before. What was the expectation gap? What are the things that did you think it was going to be like? And, and what do you, what are the things that just didn't turn out to be the case? Good and bad. Yeah. Um, I probably thought I was going to do more in the spreadsheet ish um, style. I do spend a lot of time in spreadsheets. It's, <laughs> uh, but I probably didn't realize how hands-on I would still be. Um, after we started getting, you know, uh, some pickup in the market, I'm still incredibly hands-on. Maybe, maybe other CEOs aren't like that, but, uh, I love it. I love that work. Um, I love talking to, as I said, I'm, I'm very people focused. Uh, and you know, in many ways I now view my role as, as we get larger, um, as being less about the person who does the things, but the person who like clears the blockage is out. Right. So I'm like, how can I make it so other people can do good work? And that's sort of where I focus a lot of my energy is like just making sure that everybody else has what they need to be successful. Yeah. And it's worth contextualizing for the folks out there uh, in terms of where you guys are right now. So yeah. as I understand the business, it's a, a relatively new startup, but you have raised money, you've got traction, the product is out there, it's doing stuff. Can you give us a quick pressy as to where you guys are right now? Yeah, absolutely. So we are an early stage company. We're just over two years in. Uh, we kind of break a lot of the, so we have raised a, a pre-seed round um, or what would be traditionally called a pre-seed round. Uh, we don't fit a pre-seed company. We have a product to market. We have revenue. Um, like we do quite well. We work with a lot of big names. We have plenty of customers coming in. Um, so we, in many ways, kind of break the traditional VC-backed startup model uh but that said i think what we're seeing in the in the larger i'll say marketplace economy is that that model has been a little bit broken um and a lot of that is correcting itself right and i think we have been really well set up for that correction because we have focused on building a business from the start and yeah. uh that's definitely what we're doing even though we're you know it's still a young company yeah, that's, that's, that's very interesting because obviously the moment might have shifted um, and we're, we're kind of in the middle of this moment, haven't we, where we, we, we saw the shift from, uh, I, I haven't heard the word hyperscaling, for instance, for the last six months. Uh, yeah. Have you, folks? Uh, yeah, it's no longer, it's no longer, it's no longer cachet. That is now taboo. It's now profit, revenue, real business. Um, so all of those, let's scale to the size of the earth and try and then try and figure out profit no go um yeah. and it's like companies and, and money is going towards businesses where there's a clear path to success even if that path is going to be slower because you, you're doing it organically rather than having this like ridiculous infusion of cash um which is just like a, uh, almost like a pump and dump i mean it's like yeah let's inflate it to this size and then get a next round of people to inflate more and they keep blowing the bubble up um, but yeah, the bubbles popped, I think. So great to see that that's where you're at and you're already well positioned. Um, what's the origin story behind that product, um, Ariel? Can you, can, do you remember like, when was the moment when you realized, okay, I'm, I'm doing this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so <clears throat> previous to Dato, I was the chief product officer at another HR tech company called Small Improvements. They're a leader in uh, performance and feedback for SMBs. And um, we were looking at how to expand the product offering there. And uh, one of the opportunities that came up in the research was something in the, the idea of employee experience, very fuzzy, high level, but there was an opportunity there. It was not the right problem for small improvements to solve. It was too far from the core product. We chose something else. 
Um, but it was a real interesting problem. <laughs> and I love interesting problems. Uh, it also really aligned with a lot of what I was hearing. I mean, obviously it came from research. So a lot of what I was hearing with the customers that we worked with our HR leaders and with my personal experience at previous companies. Uh, and then when COVID hit, all of a sudden this managing remote work and hybrid work and all of these global workforces, it became just, un, I mean, just unmanageable. And so uh, it was the right time in the market to pivot over from small improvements to form our own thing and try to solve this problem. And I think this is one of the reasons why we've had such good success. Um, and so early is that this is actually a really painful problem. But when people were 100% in the office, maybe you didn't notice it as much. Yeah, so COVID, the external circumstances exposed in sharper relief, if you like, yeah. what the problem was. How would you describe the problem to someone who's just encountering it the first time, you know, there's no HR recruiting or whatever? Yeah, absolutely. So running people programs in an organization takes a ton of time and gives you no data back, maybe some qualitative data from a survey or something like that. But um, how, how do we actually reduce that time and have data back that shows that that investment is work, worth it for the business? And that's really where we come in. We can run a pro people program, onboarding, re relocation, parental leave, whatever it might be, in significantly, like dramatically less time than a person. And we give you quantitative data back to actually know the business impact of running that program. Yeah, in many really, ways, we're really like a product or marketing um, tool that people use for their customers, but with an employee as a customer. Yeah, that's really interesting because I think we, we HR and, and generally lacks that kind of tooling. It's often a mm -hmm. case of you get on with it, you do it yourself, and you know that process isn't documented or recorded in any way. You, you made a bunch of mistakes, you've done some things well, and then you think, great, I wish I, I hope no one tells me to do that again. Uh, yeah. And then, but then, you know, six months later, someone has to do it again. So yeah, yeah I think there's lots of like hidden issues that needed COVID to be exposed. It almost needed the shift to remote to expose them in sharper yeah. relief. Um, and we're starting to see the emergence of these cool new categories uh, come through, which is very exciting stuff. Um, what was the, um, was it always obvious that you were going to be the CEO of this uh, journey or, you know, as you were growing up as a person and growing in your career, did you ever have the burning fire to, to do this yourself? Or again, was it just circumstance uh, sort of found, found, uh, did you just find circumstance at the right time? So funny enough. So I, I did run a consulting, a small consulting uh, thing before when I was with music still. So I was doing a digital strategy for musicians uh, I'm actually one of the pioneers of the direct-to-fan model. I worked with OKGO OK and Amanda Palmer, the two leaders in the space at the time, uh, helping to develop what we now consider like the tried and true way of doing that. People thought we were crazy. Like they literally thought it couldn't be done. And I was like, I can definitely do this. Uh, so I, I did run my own sort of thing over there, a little consulting firm. We, I was very successful. And I just decided that for my own... I don't know, personal well-being that I wanted to pivot and move into nonprofit. And I did that for a couple of years. So I shut that down. Um, and then I I did actually think that, think about whether or not I wanted to found a st my own startup. And I said, no, I just, I actually said no. Um, but this opportunity presented itself with my co-founders and a great idea. And I mean, it was one of those things where it's like, if I was ever going to do it, this was the situation to do it. And I have not looked back. I really, really enjoy it. 
there are definitely better days than others when you are, you know, are in this kind of role and this early of a company, but it's a really fun journey. And um, yeah, I love, you know, I, as I, I try to say, it's like, I'm trying to build the company I've always wanted to work for. Yeah. I totally get it. And and you know what? I think that's what's interesting about having these types of conversations that every CEO has their own journey. Um, like there isn't a template um, to follow, which is I, I find like super encouraging because it, it basically means that there is the uh, a sufficient distribution of opportunity to give this a shot. Um, and it's great that different people from different backgrounds are, are, are getting in there. And I think people can see from, you know, the stuff that's around you and, and or whatever on camera right now that you're coming from a creative arts type of background. That's always been mm -hmm. something you've been doing. Again, that would not be the prototypical ex background that people say, oh, this would be someone who'd be running a, a tech startup effectively. So, yeah. um, so yeah, very, very interesting. Um, when you were spooning back right way back when, um, this is back in the art sort of days when you were doing that type of work. Um, like what were you thinking at this stage in, in terms of going forward career-wise and what have you? There's tons of people that are involved in the creative arts. I think it's underfunded, under-resourced. I also think it's one of those places where we don't adequately connect the talent with opportunities. It seems to be me people really have to figure out themselves um you know I've, I've had friends that are actors friends that are in, in, in music for instance and it's like yeah you just gotta here's the world <laughs> it's like go and try and do something there i think wow that's like so wide open um what, do you, what were your thoughts when you were sort of doing that type of uh, in that sort of space in that journey yeah I'm going to date myself a little bit here, but I guess that's okay. Um, so my degree is actually in fine art photography, like film photography, which really kind of gives you a sense of, of time. Um, and the internet was a wild, wild west back then. And I really loved the opportunities that it created. I felt like it was, it was in many ways, like a, a big democratizer. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and say that's the way we say it. Uh, and that it created opportunity for many people to be creative in a way that you couldn't in traditional media. So I actually taught myself to code from library books. <laughs> wow. The clash of two worlds, right? Yeah. Complete clash of two worlds. Mm -hmm. Wow. And, uh, and I really loved producing art projects online. And then I found out that actually... It was much easier for me to get work as a developer than it was for me as a fine art photographer. Uh, and yeah, I really leaned into it. And so I was a, a developer and then a designer and developer when that was one job um, many, many moons ago. And I did that. I worked at a major label. I worked at Epic. Uh, I also worked in the entertainment industry. I did the first websites for like The Hobbit and he's just not that into you and stuff like that. Yeah. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, you know, I, I love this journey because this is this, by the way, folks, this is web one. You're not aging yourself at all. I, I was definitely a web, web one baby as well. But it was an amazing moment to see that transition. And we've seen the web change like several iterations. And again, it seems to be changing once again. Um, and it, what we can say, I think, from from doing it is, is to get yourself in the mixer of that change is ultimately going to be beneficial because it's going to give you opportunities that you didn't uh, have before. Um one of the ways in which you can succeed in the world of work, uh, in the world of creative arts, is definitely using personal network, 
building connections, building all of that stuff. Have you been able to to bring any of that skill set into sort of your work today? Like how how are those two worlds, those two eras actually interfacing in, in your how you do your job as CEO of data? Yeah. Um, well, I'll say working with rock stars gives you a really good idea of how to manage different types of people. <laughs> I love it. Uh, yeah. So, and, and um, how to make compelling arguments, I guess. Uh, you know, also, I think working in that kind of creative industry, and then when I went over to nonprofit of like, like, why do we invest in these? A lot of what I've done has been on the like, you know, the bleeding edge um, for different industries. And and um, I have to be able to then show back of like, why are we doing this? And, and it's not just to be cool. It has to like drive forward a goal. So I think that this, this has really helped me um, both do things that people haven't done before, but with like actual business purpose. Um, I mean, artists are still businesses, right? That's generally speaking how they run. Um, and so being able to make sure that we like tie back that effort and that cost to actually delivering value for the brand or the band. <laughs> um, and I'll say the other thing is, is creative problem solving. Um, I think a lot of people get really married to a specific idea of it has to be this way, or it has to, like, there's only one solution and there's always more solutions always. And working in, in the arts really, I think this is the biggest thing I got actually got out of my art degree is like how to solve the same problem in a different way. Uh, and this mm. is something they really teach you a lot in art school. And so, you know, every time I hit a wall in one direction, I'm like, okay, great. Where's the ladder? How do I dig under it? How do I go around it? Like there's, you know, how do I break it down? <laughs> Whatever it is. Um, I just don't let things get in my way. Uh, and I'm also, yeah, I just don't hold on to things like they're precious because I can always find something else or a different idea or something better that might end up, yeah, just being even more fun or more exciting or more results driven than what my original idea would have been. That's really interesting. That's part of the creative process, isn't it? To be able to explore, pick up ideas, change them, put them down again, and then find others. I think, again, these are now like very important skills. If you think yeah. about how that applies to the world of work and business, how many managers or CEOs or candidates have you seen that are just totally fixated on their way of doing things? Um, and do we not say, like, we always say, hey, listen, we need like diverse mindset. We need to have different ways to think around a problem. Well, guess what? Uh, it's a creative arts that are there that are teaching people how to do this. Um, yeah. There's techniques that are taught in art school um, that I think we're, we're losing because uh, we, we don't connect the world of arts into the world of commerce in a, in a sophisticated way. Um, and in many cases, we're driving people away from arts because we're, we're, we're kind of put a utilitarian sort of a, a angle on things and saying, look, you know, if you want to convert to money, you need to do it with the spreadsheet. Um, so, so I think we're, we're in danger of losing a great deal here, but it's wonderful to see people like you that, you know, can sort of operate as something of a bridge. Um, okay. Um, in terms of what you, um, uh, sort of do as a CEO, Ario, um, you, you mentioned at, at the beginning that you had uh, a style, a way of working. Um, are you conscious of the sorts of areas that where you're weak as a CEO? Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> So quick, yes, straight away, some obvious things. What are they and how do you handle that? So 
Uh, I am a, I, my background is product. I love product. Um, it is my passion. I would also say I'm very good at it. Um, and it can be enticing for me to want to lean into that. Um, which I do definitely when I need like, say my dopamine fix. <laughs> um, but that's not necessarily where the business needs me to spend time. Uh, and it was actually one of the first big Legos I had to give away. Um, I chose to give it away because it was the easiest role for me to hire for because I know that role. I know how to hire well in that area. So even though it was kind of my favorite space, I, I gave it away very quickly and let go of it. We have a fantastic head of product. She, I cannot say enough like great things about her. Um, and so I'm very happy that I gave those Legos away. Um, I've had to lean a lot into what they generally call the commercial side, which is like sales and marketing. I've worked with a lot of sales and marketing teams. I've never done sales and marketing work. Um, I was really intimidated by it, especially sales work, honestly, when I started and I had to just force myself to do it. Uh, and part of this is like learning to dissect what is the problem I'm trying to solve, um, talking to people who have solved it before, you know, not thinking that I'm unique and our situation is unique because it's rarely um, gathering that information and then practicing and being willing to be bad at something before you become good at it. Um, and so <laughs> I love that. Uh, folks, that's a great quote. You know, you have to be prepared to be bad at something in order to get good at it. And, and that hit me really like in a deep way, because I'm one of these people that actually needs to be amazing at something straight away. Um, and if I'm it's no hard, good at especially it, as I, we get older, like we're used to, we lean into the things that we're good at and then we keep going down that path. And then the first time you like to come back to being like really bad at something, or we'll just say entry level at something is, um, it's a challenging thing. It's a it's a challenging emotion to navigate. Mm -hmm. This I, I think I was badly brought up. No, no disrespect, Mark, but but um, but I I think she made a mistake here because she was quite hard on me where, on error, and she's very unforgiving on error, which caused me fear for, mm. for for making mistakes. Um, and so I ended up just doing stuff that I was inherently good at, you know, just natural connections with and all the rest of it. But then avoiding things that I was really bad at. So for instance, I didn't I didn't learn to swim properly until I was an adult. Classic example terrible mistakes. I missed out on like 20 years worth of like going to the beach and going in the water. Why? Cause I was really bad at it. Um, and I didn't like to feel bad. Right. Yeah. And, and that was, that was, that was one of the things that I'm still kind of working on. You know, um, it, it's a, it's, 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 it's a massive impediment to learning. Um, if you have that sort of, uh, that sense. Um, so yeah, but you, that no problem for you, Ari, you just uh, had to just grit your teeth and, and, and uh, swallow the medicine, I guess. I mean, I think it's like one of those skills that if you haven't practiced it in a long time, that um, it can feel uh, really tough, you know, like you get sore after that workout when you haven't gone to the gym in a long time. Um, but then after a while, that goes away. And so now I'm just constantly doing things that I'm not very good at because I'm learning to do them either for the first time or relearning or whatever it might be. And and honestly, I love it. Like I used to be really afraid of it or I'll say intimidated by it maybe. Um, and now I just love it. I really love it. It's like probably one of my favorite parts of my job is how much I get to learn. That's actually a really uh, important lesson um, because there's two things you mentioned there that are important. Um, this, this concept of comfort zone, like it, it shrinks your world. That's what a comfort yeah. zone is, folks. Um, it makes your world smaller because you can just go in these small spaces 
um, where that could be physical, that could be emotional, it could be intellectual, it could be whatever. Um, uh, and you're, you're failing to just test those boundaries and expand your, your scope. Uh, and it's comfortable, it's easy, but that's the end of your life, in my opinion. That's, that's yeah. when you're, that just gets smaller and smaller right uh look at your grandparents um they got really small uh comfort zones right and that, yeah. that's fair enough because they're, they're at a certain age but you want to resist that if you're in still creative mode if you're still contributing plus plus something you've got to push to the edges uh, and that's where you need to uh, get into outside of the comfort zone and that often involves chewing over ideas that are uncomfortable <clears throat> or, or doing activities that you're not great at uh, mm -hmm. interacting with people that you don't naturally get on with yeah being um, vulnerable i mean seriously sometimes i'll do stuff and i ask my team can you watch this and give me feedback like do you know how <laughs> super vulnerable <laughs> crap yeah <laughs> but I, I have i am a better everything because of that you know all right so, so the vulnerability that's a really interesting angle on that's topical as well the vulnerable ceo um, which is quite a new thing. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it, I think it's like within the last five years that that became where vulnerability became a thing. In the last two or three years, that vulnerability at the, at the top became a thing because there, there was a, the, for most of the history of business leadership, the, the leader had to be uh, distant from the community, from the employees, and also solid like the, the it was like the front was always there right yeah how do you think that that is do you think that's a good way to lead or do you think it's impossible is is transparency as a result of like technology progression like it's impossible uh to, to, to maintain that front anymore or do you think we've progressed uh leadership or do you think it's just a different style of leadership you know i really just don't know i would say that it would be inauthentic for me to do it in a different way Right. Um, and I would lose out on a lot of value that my team members can like bring to me. Right. Uh, the other thing I would say is, is that like I'm hiring smart people for a reason. <laughs> like they are supposed to know more about the different areas than I do. That's why they're here. <laughs> uh, so I should be leaning on them um, from a pure business perspective. I want to get the most value out of them as I can. And one of the one of the ways you do that is having them, you know, upskill me. Um, and so, I mean, in order to be able to do that, though, you need to be able to admit that you likely need the upskilling, uh, which can be a challenge, I think, for some people. But it's I just couldn't imagine another way to do it. It must be I mean, it's already a very lonely position. Um, I couldn't imagine it being, I could imagine it being even more lonely and then you're making decisions in a vacuum, but you know, people do it, right? Like I'm saying this maybe from a position of naivete, um, but yeah, it would be, it would be very inauthentic for me to not expose the things that I struggle with. Um, I also think, you know, again, going back to the like concept of, I want to build the company I've always wanted to work for is that um, I, I want to demonstrate that that behavior, that asking for help when you need it um, and admitting when you don't know something is like not just OK, but it's encouraged that we should act as a team and lean on each other. And um, the best way to reinforce that culture is to do it from the top. Right. So, yeah, it's part I, of my yeah, responsibility 100%. in many ways. 
Yeah, uh, 100%. So, so, so you think that this approach, number one, aligns with you from a personality perspective. Um, but number two, it's also important for to, 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 to kind of be, be a cultural building sort of activity because you need other people to, to pay attention uh, and, and adopt that mentality. It's no question that the CEO uh, uh, sort of creates the tenor and creates the setting of things and people are going to follow a pathway um ceo is is the cultural progenitator progenitor good sure. good lord you, you know we score that um and so and so that's um that's that's critically important and transparency the ability to ask for help is is i think very much a i mean you can fetishize that you know there, there can be a point where people seem to be just like articulating this in order to perform if you like or to, yeah. to gain attention i mean these are you know uh, uh addictive things sometimes um uh, but but you know you think it's a quick way to do that <laughs> if, if, yeah. if the purpose was the secure uh, an answer is a quick way uh, but um if we're encountering unprecedented problems like a lot of us are then you know the best way to do is open it up and, and see whether anybody else has encountered this um which is critically important um how do you make sure with a distributed business um that these things kind of adhere i mean is is it just natural do you think that, that these things will will occur as a result of the people you've hired and recruited or are there certain techniques that you could you could implement as the leader to say okay we're doing it this way with, with a half an eye to think you know what that's going to produce this sort of cultural outcome down the road i mean we're so I would say it depends on the stage of the business. You know, we're still early. So one, some of the things that we're working on is like establishing our, you know, um, internal policies. And uh, and I really want to take the time to do that in a very collaborative way. Uh, so I think that there's something around cementing those and writing them down that is actually important. Um, I think if you're a if you are a later stage company, you likely have those and they need to be revisited. Um, learning to live the, not just writing them down, but learning to live your values is, is a challenging thing. Um, and so making sure that how you have the processes that help reinforce that um, is critical. But I do think a lot of it is also around, um, you know, practicing a little bit what you preach. Um, and, and, uh, and then, I, yes, I would say also intentional hiring, right? I, I don't believe in the concept of like cultural fit <laughs> um, because I think that it's really can be used to exclude a lot of people because I think culture changes with the people. Uh, and so I do think that there's there's a, about being really intentional around hiring and who you bring in and then also investing in them, right? People are all on their own journeys and, and knowing that... Um, you know, a person like attitude is really important in that if you can invest in someone who has great attitude, um, then that will also, yeah, I'll say pay off maybe more than like the person who is an exceller, but is going to be not great for reinforcing <laughs> the culture that you're trying to build. <laughs> I, I, I totally get it. I totally get it. I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a nepotism uh, sort of fan at the heart, to be honest with you. Um, simply because it's it's hard to um, uh, 
a big part of working with each other is, is building trust relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, and you think about the people that have been great hires over time and the people who is a reason, for instance, when you found a company, you typically found them with people you've worked with before. Yeah. Um, that's not because you, you know, you've forensically analyzed them against the rest of the market and they have suddenly definitely confirmed they're the absolute best technical fit for the job element of that but the main part is you've worked with them before and there's a trust relationship there you can know they know you you know them there's a predictability there and that eliminates a great deal of the risk um especially when you're working so tightly at early stage so i I think there's uh, there's an element where getting that group of people together at the very early stage you could probably lean into a lot of the stuff that we would disapprove of at a bigger stage um uh, you know um hiring for people you know people you work with before leaning on your network uh but then you run out of those folks quick um and and you'll move on to okay hiring people you don't know that's when you need to employ all of the tooling and the processes we now know um there's a a gap between getting there yeah so um so yeah it's 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 an interesting uh thing to talk about jason thank you so much for for the comment about hiring right for attitude how do you source for attitude i mean is is it isn't isn't that just a good feel though like you know oh no i have standard questions i ask in every interview (laughs) give us an attitude question like how do what 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 question would you ask to kind of identify someone exposed I mean, there. so I love, I have a couple of standard ones that I think are really telltales. Uh, so one of them is tell me about a time you failed, like really failed, like super failed. And um, what was the failure and what did you learn from it? Uh, in general, what I'm looking for there is someone who tells me about a time they actually failed, <laughs> which you'd be surprised that like 75, 75% of candidates will often give me the, um, I didn't argue for my idea hard enough. <laughs> so you think red flag, uh, BS, the BS yeah. flag comes or, up with that one. Or they're like, <laughs> yeah, they have all sorts of like, so I really am looking for someone who knows how to fail with grace and can learn from it because then you will always be able to advance. It's really an important um, attitude. Another one that I ask that is a standard question for me is how do you factor diversity, equity, and inclusion into your work? Um, what I'm generally looking for there is that they even like, like that they'll think about it and have a conversation with me. Um, I can get a big gambit like, uh, in responses. Um, but I don't want to get the response that's I don't, or like, that's not my job. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, you know what? That, I think that is a really great question to ID people who are bought into the concept of DEI, um, mm-hmm. and uh, and and both of those responses that you would would be would be knockout uh, responses, I would imagine. Uh, um, uh, the 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 one that says I don't actually would I, I'm I'd be more respectful of that position than the one that would try and BS the, the, the scenario or. You know, that's not my job. Kind you, of I don't get a lot of BSs on it. Um, I do get a lot of that's not my job. And yeah. like, and that is, I would say, not the attitude that I'm looking for. Well, yeah, that's that I think is a very good uh, sort of passing question to, to mm-hmm. ascertain that type of uh, that type of attitude. Absolutely. Um, OK, let's talk about some uh, some some bigger things going on in the marketplace. Um, so zooming, zooming out. Um, where do you see sort of the, uh, 
how companies will be moving forward in terms of their relationship with employees. Um, uh, one of the things that seems to be happening is that there is this, uh, you know, peak COVID, we had, yes, CEOs and businesses need to do better with for employees. There has to be a rebalancing. You know, we're talking about uh, the, the new new deal, et cetera, the new new deal. Um, and now we have kind of a situation where, oh, it looks like we might be in, heading towards a recessionary period. It could be difficult. We see high profile cutbacks, all this type of stuff. Um, and maybe employers are starting to think, okay, now we're going to play a bit hard, harder ball. Maybe the the, the outrageously uh, sort of uh, uh, a conspicuous example would be Musk and Twitter right now as the at the very far end of the spectrum of, of playing hardball. Um, but you can imagine there's an element of this in every manager of a corporation and thinking, right, we're doing this aggressively cut costs. Where do you see that it, it, it happening and do you think this is the right thing and or how would you do it? Oh, that is a big question. So I'll divide it into kind of two spots um, or two like paths. One is, is like the influence of um, venture-backed um, you know, companies, uh, or, or just funding in general on companies is, uh, it has, I think in many ways forgotten that the, that the primary reason we build a business is to have a business. And, um, and that means that business needs to make money. <laughs> and what happens is, is that, um, we've prioritized growth for growth sake saying, we'll figure out the monetization later. Um, this works in some, this has worked in some places. I'm sure it will continue to work, but you know, you're seeing this that like oftentimes you can't figure it out um, or you figure it out with what I would call the lowest common denominator of monetization, which is um, selling ads and selling your users data. And, um, and uh, so I think you're seeing some correction in the market around um, saying, okay, you need to have like a path to profitability at some point, at least some glimmer, you need to have a monetization structure a little bit in the beginning, and you should be able to test and validate to show that you're on the right path compared to building out like a hundred person team running for two years and then just closing it. And um, uh, so I do think we're going to continue to see, I'll say a refocus on, on business basics uh, in the, in the market, which I think is in general good for employees as well. Uh, you want to feel like your work has purpose and that it's um, contributing to the larger goals. And when you feel like, I mean, I think employees know they can, they, especially because they're on the ground, usually, you know, they, I say that in the fact that they're in the details, like they can smell that something is uh, a waste of time. <laughs> um, the other side I would say is that, especially when it would come to like employee experience, employee benefits, employee uh you know, just in general, how we deal with employees, I think we're going to see that there's going to be a lot of refocusing on um, back to, again, maybe sort of in line with the business basis of like, how can you prove this? Like, what's your data that says that this is, this is having the impact that you wanted to have? Um, <clears throat> I think that, I think that the focus on providing great experience, whether it's things like fertility benefits, or healthcare, or, um, or things like you know a tool like data where we we really um, streamline this uh, for employees is is important. I think that a happy, healthy workforce will produce good business results for you. Uh, the question is is you know what's your spend on that look like, and are you is is that um, is that matching the impact that you're coming back? 
the more the more we talk already, the more obvious so how future aligned your 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 product is because i think those two things will 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 will, will uh, going to work together there's going to be more cost consciousness number one mm-hmm. um and but there's also a recognition that you can't just beat down your employees elon musk style like you can't do that no. um I, I think he's the only way in which that can happen is that he is like a, a, the world's richest man he can get away with it most people who are in that situation will not do, do these activities and they'll be fired immediately by board of directors or whatever so you can't have you can't take that approach yeah. um so but at the same time you need to validate if you're going to do something that is building culture for the company or you're going to do something that's going to help with onboarding you're going to do, do, do something that's going to help with some benefit scheme or some some such we need to validate that with information we need to validate it in terms of roi so that's where uh, data would come in to help, uh, help help you do all of those things. So, so yeah, I think that's like super future aligned, even though I think it's going to take the market a little bit of time to adopt this in uh, and, and bring it further forward. Um, it kind of leads me to, to the next point, actually. When you're doing, I love the fact you're doing the sales and you're doing that kind of connection because you're close to the cons- customer. Um, what's the first reaction you get when you talk about the problem? Do they see, is it a problem that's obvious to them? Or is there an education piece that still needs to happen? Where is the market literacy so far with regards to what it is you do? Yeah, great question. Um, so we're definitely talking to companies that uh, this pro- this problem is is so bad that it's like they have high turnover in the roles that are say, so if we use onboarding as our example, the person who manages onboarding tends to have um, high turnover because they're basically sensitive data entry people and they're copy and pasters. And that's usually not why they've gotten into that role. And uh, and they're drowning in this like administrative work. Managers hate it. They have to like chase them. I, it's like, a, it's herding cats. It's a herding cats role. And, um, and so they're really feeling this pain. The interesting thing is, is that they just don't believe a tool can actually like do what we do. Um, the number of times that I, I will get on with a prospect and, and demo and they're like, wait, this is possible. It's like, they're like, this is magic. Like, it's not magic. It's so I think that this is, I think when you said that it'll take the market a while to catch up, I do believe that's going to be, uh, the case, you know, we're playing that long game and, um, I think part of that is because HR is so used to um, having just, I mean, I'll go ahead and say it, just like a horrible tool stack to work with um, that is just clunky to deal with, ugly. Like, it's just like if they're used to being so under-resourced and and um, in the tool area and that the idea that they could have a tool that was consumer grade, to, that was specifically designed for their pain points just seems too good to be true for them still but that will change i believe that you'll start to see that they will this will be the expectation and that a lot of other of the big players in the space now who are in say like the hris space or payroll or whatever they'll really have to catch up yeah so you can expect some of those bigger categories to start building towards this category you're building yourself mm-hmm. um and then once that happening uh, happens you, there's to be more education uh, into the market in terms of uh, you know where you're at and where it's going to go yeah super interesting um ariel let's talk about some society stuff um the it's very conspicuous still that you know there's a gender uh uh inequality when it comes down to people who are setting up and starting recruitment technology businesses 
Um, I mean, you can actually look at Founders Focus as, as an example of that. Um, it is a, it is a, an interview series that is specifically for people who have founded recruitment technology businesses. Um, there's only ever been, I think, two women on previous to it. Um, I think you're the third. So there's 33 episodes. You can do the math on that, which I think is actually probably reflective of what the general state of it is. Yeah. Like the vast majority of people mm -hmm. that set up recruitment technology businesses um, are men. And this is probably at a one sort of 20, 19 to one kind of ratio is, is where I think we're at. Where, why? Oh man, if I could, if I could answer that question. Um, I think a lot of different re reasons. Um, some of it comes down to just straight privilege uh, and what you're told. You know, as a, as a child, I was um, not encouraged to pursue like technology. Uh, that was something that men did, not women. And um, and uh, and that was the case through pretty much every step of my education and through uh, you know, as I said, I learned to code. I went to art school because that's what that's what women do. And uh, I. Uh, I taught myself to code from library books because how many women did I know who went and got computer science degrees? Um, and so it felt like impossible for me because no one else was doing it. Uh, and then, so a lot of that is like what we're encouraged to do, whether or not we have, you know, um, uh, visible, you know, um, representation to show us that it's possible. And, um, and then of course, so I'm from the U S and the access to education there is um, very much based off of um, your uh, class. <laughs> and, um, and I did not come from a class where that was as was possible, like the options were more limited for me. And uh, so there was just a lot of things that I would say influenced even to where I got into, into working in, a, in the technology world. And then after that, I've been the first female hire on pretty much every technical team that I've been on. And it's really challenging. It is really challenging to shift a culture that is designed for a very specific type of person um, and do that in a way uh, where you don't you know, because you can't, you can't shake the boat too much because, you know, like me, even just being there was already like revolutionary, which is just, okay. I want to like, can I do like a, a dramatic eye roll? <laughs> like, um, it, so I think there's a lot of that. I, I naturally have the personality where I like, you're just going to have to deal with it. We will work through it. It's going to be fine. <laughs> But I am yeah. not, you know, I'm not the secretary. I'm not the team mom. Like I am not that person. And um, and I've had to fight to make that space for myself. And I can definitely understand how for other women um, or people who identify as non-binary that like it's exhausting. You just get tired of doing it. And I can see why you would not want to continue on that journey. I mean, there's definitely days where I want to give up where I'm just like, am I still doing this emotional like like, am I still taking on this emotional burden and, and doing all the like heavy lifting here? But I really feel like it's worth it. One, I love it. And two, like I'm making space for the next, like I'm making space for the next generation. And oh man, that just like, that brings me a lot of joy. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this, this, the more we learn about it, the more uh, kind of 
I mean, I, I don't want to use the word invidious because it, it, it kind of uh, implies there's, there's huge planning involved. I don't think it's huge planning, but, but, but what it is is that there is legacy. Mm -hmm. um, and legacy is like so hard to change um, because it, there's so much encouragement. You know, if you see people that know who you are, like, for instance, entrepreneurship, actually, tech startup is actually a really good example where, again, uh, the vast majority of people are white male founders who've come from middle class background, have had the privilege to make the gamble. Right. They've yeah. already had, you know, it's okay to, to to roll the dice this way because you don't have to work in the takeaway or you don't have to work here. Yeah. You don't, you yeah, don't have to get a job. Fail, mommy and daddy will catch you. Or like, you know, and and there's nothing wrong with having a great family like uh structure and and having that, but um like having that support, but it's not equally <laughs> It, it, it's that is reality though as well because if you have kids of course you're going to set themselves up to succeed that's your job as a parent um so we can understand that's true um but what we have to do as a society and as a as, as individual employers and stuff like this is to put some rebalancing in in some way um because we need to uh you know there's entrepreneurial talent in every strata of society um and in fact you know when you see sort of people coming in from different backgrounds that's what sometimes you get the most unique kind of uh, innovations um, and you get the, the sort of drive that is actually unusual, uh, that it's actually hard to cultivate if you come from a place of privilege. Um, yeah. Because if you've, again, privilege is a form of comfort zone. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, if, if you've had it easy, um, it's actually very easy to go back to easy. If that yeah. makes any sense. Yeah, um, it does. I mean, I'll say status quo or momentum are incredibly dangerous forces because you're on this path and it, 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 it creates sort of like what we do to horses or whatever, where you put the blinders on because, so it's like, we just keep going. We don't know that there's all this other stuff out there. Um, and so it can be very challenging for people to have those blinders taken off. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. This is again, where we need to just expose ourselves to new things and then yeah. encounter uh, sort of different people, different contexts as, as regularly as, as we can even down to the fact where you got to like block something into your diary to make sure that happens. Uh, you know what I mean, it's like, I'd love it if people like, just go, maybe I do it myself, just randomly block book like an hour a day. Some, uh, that is, you have to do something you don't do or you've never done. Uh, <laughs> go and do that. Um, and then you, your life will get better, I think. Um, so, okay. Um, talk to us about Germany. Um, what is it like setting up a company in Germany? Um, is this well, the pros and cons? Give us the the, 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 the quick uh, pressy on this. Um, it's a lot of paperwork. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's interesting because I had a company in the U.S. and now I have a company in Germany, and um, so there's 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 a lot of interesting things at every bit. So first off, the the amount of upfront costs you have to bear to create a to actually create a business is astronomical compared to the US. Uh, so it's a really big barrier to entry. Um, and it is a lot of paperwork. I do think that there's a lot of things they do right. Uh, but yeah, it is, it's just not a modern system. You can't just do it over a couple of days. Uh, and it is, um, yeah, it is a very, it's, it's, and even just the types of companies, they're like designed for like, you know, Florian Müller to like pass down his candle making business to his son, Florian Müller. So like, uh, it is, it's, there's, there's a lot of work going like in, in progress to try to modernize the systems. Um, but 
it, it's slow. The other thing I'll say is that um, it, when we talk about like, especially gender diversity, Germany is still incredibly far behind. For example, so German is a very gendered uh, language. So everything is gendered. And um, when I showed up to do my notarization paperwork, which is um, a different, it's a different type of notary than you probably are picturing. It's more like a lawyer. Um, the paperwork was written in all male tense, <laughs> like male nouns. Mm -hmm, and I was mm -hmm. like, uh, this is, this is, this doesn't represent me at all. <laughs> so yeah. I had to have them rewrite the paperwork because they didn't even have a template for it where it was a mixed gender founding team. Isn't that insane? <laughs> like, mm. how are we at this point in 2020? Okay. So it's 2021 when we did this paperwork where somebody who just does this type of paperwork all day long, doesn't even have the template for a male, female founding team. Yeah. Yeah. And so, again, this is this this type of stuff just takes ages to drag through, you know, ages, ages to drag through. Yeah. Also, I would challenge you, like, why does it matter what my gender is when I'm founding a company? Um, but that's a whole other thing on the basis of like gender, gender pronouns in, um, in German. But uh, yeah, so it's it's definitely been a challenge. And uh, I'll tell you, if I as a foreigner can navigate creating um, a German company and being compliant, dealing with all my taxes and everything, then I I, I can solve any problem. Like you should definitely fund me. <laughs> Conquering the HR space, child's play, if you, you know, have been able to get through the uh, the bureaucracy of uh, business formation in uh, in Germany. Mm -hmm. um, no, it's very interesting because obviously that all that may be the case and they kind of maybe even adhere to some uh, national stereotypes also. Uh, but at the same time, Germany, Berlin in particular, has been just such a booming space. I mean, tech. Berlin is amazing. And the government here really supports entrepreneurs in a way that other countries, uh, I think, could learn a lot from. Um, and I mean, there's a lot of things that really make it easy, honestly, is the fact that like healthcare here is... Um, you know, I'm on a public health care plan. I never had to sit there and worry about how I was going to deal with it, even as an early stage entrepreneur. Um, when I was in the U.S. and I had a business that was a very different case. And um, and it was actually one of the things that made me pivot away from having that is that I wanted to be able to provide health insurance to my uh, employees at the time. And it was like near impossible for me to do that as an SMB uh, at the time. I, I was about to say, I mean, the, the situation in the U.S. with health insurance, I think one of the biggest impediments of business formation for women is actually um, the, the sort of the failure to provide like universal health care, um, because suddenly you have like these huge life changing risks uh, that you're just in, getting involved in that should be taken off the table. The state needs to take that away, you know, otherwise you're not going to get those companies being built. It's um, yeah. Mm -hmm. And we've we've hired our first U.S. employees and like. And you just look at this and you're like, I'm like, I have experienced a different way. There's a different way. We can do this a different way. I promise. There's other it's solutions possible. to this problem. Yeah, there's another way. There's another way to do it. Um, but again, this is where, it, you know, interaction with others is critically important. Absolutely. All right. We've only got five minutes left. So let's kind of bring um, some of these key conversations to a close. Um, uh, looking back, if you give yourself a bit of advice before you started the journey as CEO of Data HR, what's the one thing? bit of advice you would give yourself um, to avoid some of the errors that you have made since um, one thing? Oh, you're not going to be able to do everything the way you want to be able to do it on the timeline that you want to be able to do it. Take breaks. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. Take a break. I love it. Um, okay. 
Um, what is the one thing that's caused you to think you're going to change your behavior in future? Like the one area that you need to work on um, as a CEO, um, you think, you know what, kind of keep making this error. Uh, <laughs> I've got to change my ways here. Anything you can give us on that one? Oh, I make so many mistakes, Hung. How could I pick one? Um, you know, maybe I don't hold so tightly to my mistakes because I, I'm just, I really embrace this concept of like learning from them. So yeah, I would say that I, I, I couldn't even possibly name the one because I have so many and they're fine because I'm yeah, learning from them. That's it. You don't, and you, we don't yeah. need to force an answer to that. I think that's yeah. a totally legitimate answer. Um, and it's, it's a very kind of a emotionally mature way of dealing with it. Um, I think some people can get like, outraged at themselves and there's a lot of self-hate going, my brother's one of these. I, I'm I'm, I love my brother. I'm not scared of him unless he's freaking out about something he's done that's a mistake. Because uh, then I think, oh, my God, he's going to literally punch a wall or something. Uh, I definitely like to tell myself that I don't have a time machine. And so I just need to, like, until that <laughs> happens, I just need to, like, accept it and move on. Yeah, that's it. It's done. It, it, it's a mistake. It's a screw up. Whatever it is, as you say, what's the biggest mistake you've made? You know what? You've made it. Um, so, yeah, you got to move forward. You know, yeah. that's it. The world keeps spinning. Yeah, the biggest um, mistake is not reflecting and learning from it. Yep, that's true. That's the other side. I think you need to reflect but not dwell. Yeah. So there needs to be a technique where you can review. Yep, that's an error. What could you have done better? Boom, boom, boom. Okay, great. Learned. Move on. Um, what you don't want to do is just keep sitting in it um, and then just circulating that through over yeah, and over. Exactly. That's, that's also addictive in some ways. You know, that emotional thing is like swimming in that, Ugh. but it can it can be a vortex, you know? Yeah. Cool. Um, projecting forward, what exciting things can customers of Dato HR? By the way, is it Dato or Dato HR? How do you how, how are you guys going with we, that? We say Dato. Um, our URL is datohr.com. Uh, so people. Do, do the German that. customers say Dato? We get we get both. Uh, it's a little tomato tomato. Um, but yeah, I don't care. Either one of them is fine. <laughs> ก็ไม่ได้ก็ไม่ได้ก็ไม่ได้ก็ไม่ได้ก็ไม่ได้ก็ไม่ได้ก็ไม่ได้ก็ไม่ได้ก็ไม่ได้ก็ไม่ได้
in the recessionary economy or at least a, a slow growth economy we we're, we're going to be encountering next a couple of years or so and say hey oh we can save our business x amount and still get better they're going to be ears open um absolutely that's and the businesses the live and die on their people right so like how can we do how can we do what we've been doing but better and with better data yeah absolutely I think we'll see right. a lot of that and you'll definitely cool, cool. see that from us i'll tell you that <laughs> well, well, Ariel, um, a final question for you before I let you go. Um, what important CEOing activities are you going to do at the uh, rest of the day? Um, uh, um, so after this call, what's happening? Oh, wow. I have so many fun things. So I'm meeting with our sales advisor who's continuing to coach me. And uh, and then I have um, I have a really fun um, call with a prospect that I'm very excited about. I won't name drop them, but I'm really excited because I think we could really make a big difference in their company and really and that that's really fun for me and then i am um like a good german i guess getting beers with a customer tonight and i'm <laughs> i'm really excited um yeah i think it'll only be the second time i've met them in person so this will be it's really invigorating for me to to meet customers in person and well to talk to them in general but meeting them in person is really fun that's right. And having some beers in Berlin in as the, as the winter starts biting, I think mm -hmm. that's the most romantic time and romantic in a, in a kind of, uh, you know, non-romantic sense, if that's makes any sense. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's, it's the, it's the time to do it. So, uh, well, listen, Aro Kuroi, really great chatting with you today. Thank you for coming on to Founders Focus. What an, in, what an interesting and inspiring conversation that was. Um, uh, thank you for joining us uh, on Founders Focus. I'm sure people need to find out who you are. They can do that. How? Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, Arielle Kilroy, A-R-I-E-L-E-K-I-L-R-O-Y, and then datohr.com. You can shoot over an email there if you want. And uh, I always love to connect to anybody who's interested in this space. As, as we've discussed, I'm a big learner. Fantastic stuff. Go connect with Ariel, folks. Okay, see you later. Thank you so much, Ariel. Bye. Wasn't she great? Ariel Kilroy, man, she is gonna she's gonna go far, and and this product I think is is gonna be a very very exciting uh, one to keep an eye on. Uh, basically, quantifies a lot of those people programs that you have in your business that you currently don't quantify. Um, have a think about all those things that we do in HR in terms of cultivating culture, uh, improving efficiencies, and doing basic stuff like benefits, reload, stuff like that. Um, pipe it all into this and it's gonna it's gonna pump out some amazing data for you okay that's about it thank you for watching folks we're gonna be back um on uh, sort of this friday um found it's gonna be brain food live on air we're gonna be talking about hiring the formerly institutionalized it's gonna be an amazing show i promise you this is gonna be um something you haven't uh, heard before um, uh, but it's really important that we do pay attention to it. Um, we've also got Founders Focus next week. Again, we're bringing it back on. We've got David Ravel of Clinch and Path Motion. Uh, he is going to be taking us through his journey as an entrepreneur. If you've enjoyed the show, folks, make sure you follow the channel and register for the two things I've just suggested to you. Uh, otherwise, uh, thank you for watching, uh, and I'll see you next time.